Hello, and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the news stories in the next seven days. I'm Justin Quirk. We've had a lot of new listeners to the podcast in the past couple of weeks, so if you're just discovering the Bunker, don't forget to follow us on your favourite app. And if you want to help us keep going and expanding, you can support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes for early episodes, merchandise and more. Joining me this morning to work out the week ahead is Bunker Regular and CEO of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Hi, Naomi. How are you? Good morning, Justin. I'm good, thank you. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed is what I like to hear. (laughs) Um, So we've got a busy week ahead, so we'll crack straight in. Um, Obviously, the story dominating the weekend's headlines, and I spent most of the week ahead, is still the fallout from the overturning of the abortion laws in America. Um, Most of the weekend was spent processing the aftermath of the US Supreme Court's decision even though the likelihood of this had been leaked, it was still a genuinely shocking development. It's not applying uniformly across the country. So what's the current state of play as we record? Well, the current state of play is that women are going to die, Justin. Abortion access being limited doesn't stop abortions. Uh, It stops safe uh, abortions for women. And women have been trying to control their fertility since time immemorial and will continue to need to do so. So I'm afraid to say that the the truth is that more and more women will be forced into taking matters into their own hands, doing things illegally, having pregnancies that would otherwise have been terminated due to illness, high risk, fetal abnormality, etc. And and so we can't for a second underestimate the terrible damage that this is doing uh, to to women in America. But in terms of uh, the uniformity, well, it's about 22 out of 50 states that have now restrictions on abortion. And there are sort of degrees within that. Some where it is, you know, more or less a complete blanket ban. Others where there are some sorts of abortion allowed still very early, but 11 states out of the 22 have effectively banned it. Um, And as will be no surprise to most listeners, the coastal states uh, are still much less restricted and and abortion access there can go ahead. Um, But but, you know, all of those ones in the middle, there are very, very serious restrictions on access to safe abortion. And basically what, what it's done, this this overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court is to tell people that you no longer have a constitutional right to a termination. And that uh, right now sits with state legislatures to decide whether or not uh, that state will allow legal abortion or not. For those on the pro-choice side of the argument, what are some of the options which are presenting themselves? Biden said in his statement shortly after the announcement that, quote, this decision must not be the final word. Realistically, what might that mean? Well, there are a few options. I mean, what SCOTUS has done is to fundamentally change how the constitution is approached and applied. And it seems that they're moving back to um, a term that has been coined in the US political discourse as originalism. So going back to the very original tenets of the constitution rather than a modernist approach of keeping it current for changing societal norms and advances in medicine, etc. And so that's opening up a floodgate of further changes to privacy law. 
Um, so, for instance, access to contraception, LGBTQ rights. So this is the start, probably, of something even even more sinister for more people. So the Democrats will almost certainly bring forward federal laws that enshrine that try to enshrine abortion rights in the House, but they are almost certainly going to be filibustered in the Senate by Republicans. And actually, this is an attempt that's been tried and, and failed already. You could see Biden doing a Trump and issuing executive orders. Do you remember all of those in the Trump years? He, yeah. he did everything by executive order. So, of course, that is something within Biden's arsenal, should he want to. Although, of course, there are political implications for doing all of that. And, uh, and I'm not sufficiently up to speed with the US Constitution to know whether or not the Dems could just try and flood uh, the Supreme Court themselves in in sort of similar ways to Trump era, but um, I I can't help but feel that this is so serious they need to use every constitutional lever uh, to try and do something like that. Understandably, I mean the main focus from this weekend's coverage has been on the that incredible damage this will do to women both physically and socially. But with a longer view, what does this mean for America in terms of? law and politics when we've just had a decision foisted on the country which only around a third of people support by unelected judges who expressly promised not to do this precise thing when they were appointed what state does this leave the system in broadly well i mean i think i think you're right it's it's these unelected and therefore can you even call it democratic judges making huge decisions transferring themselves into supreme legislators sitting above the democratically elected lawmakers. So it it, it will have a very big impact. You're going to see criminal penalties for those who enact abortions. And it's really elevating male dominance within the legal framework of the USA. So I don't know, you know, what's going to happen. But what, what we're hearing is that the pro- choice lobby has received enormous amounts of funding over the last few days. You're going to see far more campaign activity. You're going to see you know, protests and particularly women taking to the streets. Uh, so it, it will have a huge impact. It's just, you know, we're not entirely sure yet how deep, how bad and, and how angry the reaction is going to be. But this is a divided country that, you know, unfortunately is, is, being divided further but you're right to point out that when polls you know the majority of people are pro-choice they they don't welcome this yet somehow it's happened back in the uk the fallout from the glorious by-election double spanking that the government received last week uh, continues through this week um i mean by-elections can obviously sometimes throw up odd or anomalous results um but as the dust settles what's the mood in your political circles about just how bad the end of last week was for the government um well of course it was bad and there's no denying that it was bad for the conservative party uh in in both wakefield and tiverton and honiston though for sort of slightly different reasons slash levels very different seats in terms of the turnout you had a very very low turnout in wakefield um, a higher one, almost twice as much in Tiverton and Honiton, although below what you see in a general election typically. And in Wakefield, broadly, the Conservative 2019 vote
vote choosing to stay home rather than switch. Whereas this squeeze message worked effectively by the Lib Dems in Tiverton and Honiton and, and far more people lending their vote to the Lib Dems from both uh, Labour and the Conservatives, but also, you know, Greens and, and, and others. Um, so very sort of high levels of tactical voting, which has been talked about a lot. I think there's a couple of things. One, of course, as you pointed out, by-elections are anomalous. They are a situation where a party can focus national resource on a very small geographic area and flood a constituency and voters with leaflets and messages about how to vote to defeat the incumbent party or whatever um, that is almost impossible to replicate at a general election because of resource constraint, uh, because of electoral rules and how much you can spend in each constituency in a general election, etc., so they are very different and and sometimes and in fact sometimes often by-election wins mid-parliamentary term aren't held by that victorious party come a general election and they they flip back to their kind of traditional pattern and that's again because by-elections are different people feel they can give the government a bloody nose without worrying about changing who's actually in number 10. I think for the Conservatives, though, it may not be as bad as some people have been saying. We are very reminiscent in our political climate at the moment of the 1990s, sleaze and corruption, sort of dominating the headlines, of course, both of these uh, by-elections triggered by Conservative MP sleaze and, and actually sexual assault of a child in the case of Wakefield. But when you look at by-elections in the 1990s, the Conservatives did appallingly badly compared to their their results last week. When you look at places like Dudley West in the um, sort of early mid-90s, sort of after that 92 uh, general election win for them and, and pre the new Labour one in 97, in by-elections there, the, the Conservative vote was falling sort of, you know, 20, 30% down to 20%. I mean, I think in one of those by-elections, they only got 18% of the vote. Well, in, in Tiverton and Honiton last week, the Tory vote was hard. It held up and they got nearly 40% of the vote. So historically, this isn't actually a terribly bad set of elections for for the Conservative Party. So Johnson will be mindful of that. We're hearing lots about the 1922 committee potentially changing their rules uh, to allow another vote of no confidence. Um, Remember, Theresa May was asked to name a date to bugger off or face rule changes by the 22 committee. There's 18 members of the 22 committee that in a secret ballot with a simple majority can, uh, in an afternoon, change the rules. So we may see something like that happening uh, and lots of rumours about more letters going into Graham Brady as the the week goes on. There was a long read in Politico at the weekend about Johnson's prospects where one anonymous Tory grandee said, quote, Johnson will limp on until he bleeds to death. That's a (laughs) strange prospect there. Um, While the PM himself (laughs) said, I won't undergo a psychological transformation (laughs) in a headline that perhaps stated the obvious. Uh, Brandon Lewis was on doing the rounds yesterday found that Johnson will lead the party past the next election. Do you see anything coming which could change this likelihood or is Johnson just literally going to cling on until they send the bailiffs in? Oh yeah, no, he'll cling on. So it'll be whether the cabinet move. Um, so of course there could be this this rule change through the 22 committee but I think where backbenchers who are well organized so looking at you Steve Baker for instance they will not look kindly on a cabinet member who 
keeps quiet now and throws their hat in to the ring at a later date. So pressure on those with leadership ambition who sit around the cabinet table to make a move uh, over the summer. And I think that that will be the, the thing that, that causes him to go. But he's not going of his own volition, for sure. And following his resignation on Friday, Tory chairman Oliver Dowden has been replaced by Ben Elliott. Is Ben the kind of steady hand on the tiller that the party needs right now? Or might there be anything troubling about him as an appointment, Naomi? He's exactly what you would expect from a Conservative Party chairman. Um, so he's he's got the the Aristo credentials of being nephew of the Duchess of Cornwall. And he brings with him all of the corruption and... Uh, cash for access kinds of sleaze you'd expect so he owns um a british virgin islands company of course you know good good uh tax avoider and and it's called eng productions and it's been outed in the pandora papers among other things as having been in receipt of uk tax credits and all sorts of tax fiddling there um funded by the uk taxpayer of course he was embroiled in cash for access offers over tory uh, party donor mohammed mercy go and have a look at mohammed mercy there's there's plenty to keep you occupied on on the um, you know quiet afternoon at work when you're trying to pretend you're working and, and want to have a little read about Tory corruption that's a good one to have a look at um, and Ben Elliott has also kept links with the Moscow Bank despite obviously the um, uh, sanctions uh, that the UK and the US have imposed on most Russian banks um, he owns a company called Quintessentially it's a sort of luxury concierge service that the likes of you and I could never afford um, and one of their clients is Gazprom Bank which um, has been sanctioned by the US. So yeah, he, he's 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 perfect for the job, I think. I mean, on paper. Sounds exactly like what the Red Wall voted for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the war in Ukraine ends its fifth month this week, with fighting mainly focused at the moment on Luhansk and Sieverodonetsk, along with fresh missile attacks on Kiev over the weekend. Meanwhile, on the diplomatic front, last Friday saw EU leaders officially make Ukraine a candidate for union membership, and this week the war is expected to dominate the G7 meeting in Germany, which has just started, and the NATO gathering in Madrid. Uh, What should we be looking out for at each of these, Naomi? Well, so first of all, it's the Johnson-Macron bromance ou non. Um, Lots of differing reports as to whether uh, they had a great meeting and are on the same page or whether it was a terrible meeting and uh, they're all fighting over the size of their private jets and whether or not Europe should have a kind of tiered membership system, um, which is related to, of course, Ukraine and, and Moldova formally having their applications approved. So uh, there's that all all going on. Um, uh, Macron, of course, embroiled in the, you know, we need to find a, a solution that, that doesn't humiliate Russia. And then, you know, pretty, pretty uh, angry response from most of the other big countries saying absolutely not. And particularly Ukraine, of course, saying no, 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 we must. Um, so that is sort of something to keep a bit of an eye on, um, not least because um, while Labour in the UK has sort of ruled out rejoining customs union and single market, I think 
they aren't wholly opposed to Macron's idea of this sort of uh, dartboard effect, if you like, of of membership of the EU, um, and that one of those outer circles might be something that the UK uh, could participate in in future. Um, Greenhouse gas emissions, of course, will be on the agenda, as you would imagine. And then the biggie is food security. Well, that's, um, I say, trailed to be the key subject bar Ukraine that's going to be discussed. What steps are needed and what can we expect? I mean, the big issue obviously is the grain blockade, which there's various workarounds for. Is there anything else under discussion there? Well, so I think most people probably didn't realise until the Russian invasion of Ukraine just how dependent so many people in the world are on Ukrainian food supplies. There's 400 million people rely on Ukrainian food supplies, which is an extraordinary number when you think about it, you know, particularly when you think about the UK and we're not self-sustaining in food at all, let alone producing enough to to, um, supply that many people. And of course, within that 400 million, there are a couple of hundred million who are in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa in particular, who have very, very, very precarious food needs and, and could easily um you know be be forced into situations of food deprivation quite quickly if this doesn't get resolved things like sunflower oil not just the, the grains that we talk about because of course grains can be processed so um access to black sea ports is going to become an increasingly important area of discussion you've got talks about potentially expanding romanian black sea ports. There's going to be talk about how you can get food out through Poland. Biden's talking about expanding a a railway network in Eastern Europe. But this does mean that you're sort of going a very long way around Europe just to bring food back into Europe. And that's before we talk about uh, all the other parts of the world that are reliant on food. So again, just no matter what solution comes up with, the inflationary pressures are going to be there and they are not going away and they are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, So even though a lot of the current food inflation is being caused by um, this current supply issue of not being able to get stuff out, the solutions to get it out are also expensive. So I'm afraid uh, the world is not seeing an end to rising food prices anytime soon. Meanwhile, back in the UK, last week was punctuated by rail strikes, but despite the government's best efforts, attempts to pin this one on Labour, who haven't been in office for 12 years, as a reminder, don't seem to have stuck. Where is public opinion on this at the moment, Naomi? Well, it sort of depends which pollster you view, but they're not as against it as the Conservative Party would like people to be, put it that way. Um, they're pretty supportive, particularly once the rationale for the strikes is explained to them. So, you know, sort of upwards of, of 50% support in some polls, bit lower in others. And what, what people need to have explained to them is not just that this is about, you know, wages, but that it's about na- network rail pressing ahead with um, a consultation over changes in working practices for maintenance of the railway network. And that effectively translates into redundancies. And so quite rightly, the union is saying, hold on, no, protect jobs. But of course, they also want pay rises. So they're asking for 7% pay rise RMT. And the offer from Network Rail is currently uh, about 3%, so nowhere near 
So um, yeah, I think I think the public get that they can see what food prices are doing, energy prices are doing, and feeling that squeeze themselves. So I think that they're broadly sympathetic when they have it explained to them what these strikes are actually about. Talks are expected to resume today, although union bosses have warned that we're likely to see more strikes in the weeks ahead. Um, what are the main sticking points and what are the best hopes of resolution here? Um, I think we are in for not necessarily just the summer of strikes, but potentially into the winter as well. There's talks about rail strikes happening over Christmas now. So rhetoric, sort of, you know, building up on on one side it's of course not just rail even defense barristers threatening strike action over the lack of legal aid funding by the government which of course not just hits their income as barristers but it's clogging up the courts it's slowing down cases being brought forwards and so you know justice delayed is justice denied frankly so this is a very sort of fundamental part of the law um and if you are a, a government that is meant to be tough on crime as we are so often reminded when they've got a sticky news day and they want to change the front pages they wang on about crime week or crime day or whatever crime they are trying to pretend they've not committed themselves but everyone else is terrible for uh, is not a good look um, if you're just not able to uh, try those potential criminals you've got teachers of course wanting a pay rise they've had a real terms pay cut of 20 percent since 2010 so um are through you know sheer frustration and exhaustion of having worked so bloody hard during the pandemic for two years wanting a pay rise but of course NHS staff as well doctors etc so th- there are sort of almost no public sector worker areas where muscles aren't being flexed over potential strikes if they don't get a better deal so unfortunately we are at the beginning not the end I would say of, of some uh, disruption from public sector strikes. And uh, what was your personal favourite of the various paddlings that RMT boss Mick Lynch doled out to seemingly the entire media last week? Well, I, I think my sort of best bit really is just the lack of um, preparedness of political journalists to deal with someone giving them a straight answer. Mm. They are so used to spin and bridging from the topic that a MP or whatever doesn't want to talk about onto the one that they do and get key messages over that when they are faced with somebody who doesn't spin and just says, yeah, we are striking. No, no, of course this is why we do it. What do you mean? What does a picket line do? It stops people going to work. You know, they they then don't really have follow up. So that's sort of just been quite joyous to watch. Um, not that uh, you know, I've got a huge amount of time for for Lynch uh, in terms of his position on Europe and Brexit. Mm-hmm. However, ten out of ten for him on media performance. But if I had to pick one, it's just when he's there with Jonathan Gullis, who thinks of himself as such a straight talking normal bloke, um, and obviously it's just a government stooge and has got his hung so far up uh, Johnson's you know what just lovely to see somebody like Lynch taking him down and finally staying with unfairly matched brutal public humiliations uh, this week sees the start of Wimbledon uh, <laughs> what, <laughs> there. Uh, what are the big stories there which might distract us from the grim summer news cycle and will you be up on Henman Hill paying £28 for a small box of strawberries 
Absolutely not on the latter. No way. I'm very much the person that watched Paul McCartney's live set at Glastonbury on the pyramid stage from the comfort of my own living room with a cheap bottle of wine. And I will be the same, <laughs> but eating my two pound punnet of strawberries from Tesco's while watching a bit of Wimbledon. Well, I mean, I just think it's, it's fascinating how, you know, much like Johnson just won't retire. Neither will some of the big hitters. I mean, Serena's 40. And coming back for her, or maybe even 41, I don't know, coming back for Wimbledon again, much to the surprise of a, a lot of sport commentators um, who, who didn't think she still had another uh, big grand slam in her, but is coming back. So that's amazing. And, you know, fair play to her. Um, I'll be enjoying watching that. Um, but, you know, Nadal's not getting any younger. Yeah, I mean, they're all, they're all sort of, you know, are, have they peaked? Is this the last hurrah? I think it'll be all eyes on the on the Giants to see whether they can do it again or probably should have given up pre-pandemic. Much like the mindset with which we go into every episode of The Bunker. Anyway, <laughs> and that's Start Your Week. Naomi, thank you for getting up so early today and joining us. Thanks ever so much, Justin. Have a good week, everyone. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Don't forget, you can help us keep going by backing us on Patreon. We'd be really grateful and it would make a big difference. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow for the panel show. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Justin Quirk and Naomi Smith. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofniewicz and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.